from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Amy Smith. Amy grew up in Honduras as a Baha'i. When Amy was 16, a significant experience confirmed her relationship with the Baha'i faith. I started the interview by asking Amy where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there? I grew up in Honduras. My family moved down there when I was nine months old. The first six years, we lived in the capital. And even when we were young, we, we used to travel a lot on, on the weekends out to, to neighboring villages. And then when I was six, um, my family moved out to the Mosquito Coast of Honduras. They were inspired by a letter from the Universal House of Justice of the Baha'i community, the global community governing body. They were inspired by uh, by a call by them asking for people to work with indigenous populations because they are largely ignored by governments. I don't know if that was the reason they said, but they just said that there was a great need among indigenous communities. So my parents were very inspired by that. And so when we were six, my family with another family moved out to a little village of about eight or 900 people. When we first moved out, there was no running water or electricity, and there were villages all up and down the coast. The only way to get to this village was either by a little five-seater airplane that would land in a field or by boat for three days. Or you could take a bus from a city, and then walk for about 16 hours. So that's where I grew up until I was 12, and and then I went to a boarding school in Canada for a number of years, and I went back and forth between Canada and Honduras. What were the circumstances that your parents were in Honduras in the first place? My dad always wanted to move to a developing country. He wanted to go work somewhere and serve the the world community. And so he was always inspired by that. And then he and my mom got married, and he did his medical degree. He studied medicine. And then he did his residency in Puerto Rico. He got his tuition paid for by the National Health Corps. And then then you have to go back into about four years in an underserved area, and he thought Puerto Rico seemed like the best place for him to go. So they lived there for five years, and then he came back and did a master's in public health and and realized that he was much more interested in doing public health. And then my parents decided to go to Honduras, and he went in the capacity as, as a consultant for USAID. And my mom started a Montessori school when we lived in, in the capital. So that's kind of what was, on one hand, his work, and on the other hand, this desire to go pioneering. All right. For the benefit of our listening audience, can you define what pioneering is? So pioneering is, from my understanding, is 
a lot of people in the Baha'i community go and, and live in, in other parts of the world in order to support and strengthen the Baha'i community in that region and also to offer services to the world community and to also just become one with the population where they live, to take this idea of the oneness of, of humanity to another level. So you grew up as a Baha'i? Yes, I did. I grew up as a Baha'i. But one of the one of the nice things about the Baha'i faith is that even if you grow up as a Baha'i, you still make the choice about what you believe in, and you're considered a Baha'i until age 15, and then at that point you decide for yourself what it is that you believe in. And, and so I definitely was raised in a Baha'i family. And then, you know, I went through a little phase of just understanding more what that meant. And then I went through this experience when I was 16, and, and that's when I think my Baha'i identity really solidified. So can you describe that experience that you went through when you were 15 and 16 to come to the conclusion that you two were a Baha'i? Well, I think I never doubted it that Baha'u'llah was who he claimed to be. And I think I was going through adolescence and trying to figure out what was important to me. And then when I was 16, my middle sister passed away. She was hit by a drunk driver. On the second day of our of our family vacation, my parents were in, in Honduras at that point. My oldest sister was in North Carolina studying. And then my middle sister, Amanda, who passed away, was in New Jersey with her husband of 11 months. And we all gathered together over Christmas break. The second day of our vacation, she was hit by a car when she and my dad were bike riding. That experience is, as I'm sure you can imagine, it, you feel like your whole world has been shattered. That everything you, you kind of trust and understand to be true is just, it, it isn't. It makes you question everything. My experience was that instead of finding darkness, I, I really found a lot of meaning and I attribute that to to the Baha'i writings. And I felt like everything that I had learned throughout growing up, it suddenly became planted in my heart. I questioned everything. I feel like I'm a very emotional person, but I also am a scientist. I think a lot in very rational terms. And I felt like everything just made sense both from an emotional, spiritual place and from a mental place, how the writings describe the soul and what the purpose of our life is. She was 19 years old, and that's it. You know, in this, in this realm, it made me really think about, what am I doing here? Why are we here? So I think definitely was the most transforming experience in my life, unquestioning certainty about the Baha'i faith and this unity of all these religions, you know, that there is this purpose to why we're here and a direction that we're going individually and collectively that we don't know. None of us have the full answer of what it is, but there is truth with a capital T out there, and it's in the process of working together to figure it out and working together to really improve the conditions for all of us, that we move forward. And I think that, to me, is what the essence of 
the writings to me is this idea that there is this purpose, if you will, this divine purpose, and that it's something that none of us understand. We grasp little aspects of it as a humanity over generations from these different world religions. We learn aspects of it, and we'll continue to learn aspects of it. And in our individual lives, we continue to learn aspects of it. You had mentioned that the Baha'i writings say things about the soul, and I was wondering if you could expound on what do the Baha'i writings say about the soul, from your understanding. Yeah, from from my understanding. As human beings, we have this soul that is associated with our physical being, that when we pass on, our soul continues to exist and progress throughout all the worlds of God. The analogy that I like a lot is one that's frequently used by Abdul Baha, who's one of the central figures of the Baha'i faith. He would often explain it in terms of uh, fetus. And then also I read this book by someone named John Hatcher, which also explained it in a really beautiful way, but this idea that imagine if there's two twins in a womb, and at the moment of birth, one of them is coming out, and imagine if they could be conscious of each other, and this is a little like rudimentary analogy, but it helps us understand. Imagine if they could be conscious of each other. As one is passing out, the other one is like, oh no, my sibling is dying, this is it, it's the end. You know, it's a very painful experience for everybody involved. If you've ever witnessed birth, you know that to be true. But this infant comes out into a a much bigger realm where suddenly its fingers, its eyes, its nose, all these things that it's been developing for the past nine months is needed, is put to use. We all in this world are aware of of these, you know, developing fetuses, but that they aren't aware of, of us. In this realm, and the same sort of idea that when we pass on, our soul is released from the confines of time and place and space, this physical realm, and passes on to a spiritual realm, which clearly, as we can't understand because we do function in time and space and place, so it's something we can't fully comprehend, that we continually progress towards our Creator, and that we never become our Creator, but that we're in a constant progression. And and another concept that's difficult for us to understand is eternity, but that this is eternal, this eternal progression, and that it's not a place, it's not that you go to heaven or hell and then you go somewhere where you eat candy all day or you go somewhere where there's fire, but that there's these degrees of nearness to our Creator, to that source of love and light. The closer one is, that is, I guess, if you will, more filling, I guess could could be the word. But but again that that's something we don't we don't understand. We don't know we don't know what it's like. But in terms of being sure of the existence of souls, I have no question about it. And there's been numerous times that I have dreamt about my sister and I, I feel like I became in some ways even closer to her after she passed away and, and I often use when when talking about this and Unfortunately, I can't show you with my hands, but it's kind of like if you have two fists, your two fists up against each other. That's kind of how I felt in this world is that we're, my sister and I were very close, but that we were still separated by our bodies and our physical realities and, again, time and place and space. 
But then when she passed away, so now if you open your hand and that hand covers the fist, it kind of felt like her soul was just enveloping me, if you will. She was released from that. And that when I pass away, now the other fist opens, you clasp your two hands together and your fingers intertwine, and that's kind of how, how I understood it. So anyway, I was saying that since my sister's passed away, I've had a lot of dreams. I wake up from the dream, and the feeling of being with her is so real that I wonder whether she's alive or dead. There's like a, a minute or so where I just can't remember. Is there a dream you'd like to share? Well, actually, there's two I could share with you. Um, one was shortly after she passed away, and someone actually interpreted this one for me. A couple different people did, or their understanding of what it meant. And it was shortly after she passed away, and my uncle passed away a few months after she did. And in this dream, my aunt, my uncle, my oldest sister, and I were standing outside. We had just come out of a movie theater. It was interesting because the movie theater where we had just come out of, we had to walk out this long passageway. And in the passageway were these, it was kind of like in Disney World, (laughs) there were these bright lights in the floor that would just shine up into different parts. It was a very shiny, long kind of passageway tunnel thing that we came out of, and we were standing outside with my aunt, my oldest sister, and my middle sister, Amanda, and I were all standing outside, and we were just talking. And then, you know, I kind of realized in the dream that, wow, I'm with Amanda. Then it kind of went to the next moment. I was sitting in my room in the dream, and I was writing in my journal about the experience of being with her. And I was writing with the blue pen, and someone explained to me that a blue pen is a little bit like blue in dreams often signifies spiritual understanding. And I was writing with a blue pen, and she was dead, but now she's alive. But every time I would try to write that, the pen would run out of ink. And I tried that two or three times. And then when I woke up again, I just had this like moment of just really feeling like I had been with her. And someone said to me that obviously the movie theater and the tunnel, it almost seems like we came out of this realm, this existence, and we were standing outside the physical realm, but that my mind has to explain that experience in physical terms by using these analogies of a movie theater. The blue ink was that blue signifies spiritual understanding, and that every time I tried to say she was dead, but now she's alive, my pen would run out of ink because that's not true. She, she is kind of alive in this other realm. So that's one dream. There was this other one that that I was going through a very, very difficult time during my second year of medical school. I had just had this experience in the hospital at 3 in the morning before an exam where there was a patient that needed translation, and I just volunteered to go down and do it. And I was just very moved by my interaction with this elderly man who didn't speak any English, I have no idea what his life had been like up to now and clearly was suffering a lot. I was also very overwhelmed and stressed out about my exams. It was a week of exams. I sat down and said some prayers that night and then went to bed around 3 or 4 in the morning. And then at some point I woke up from that dream crying. And in the dream, I was sitting in a room, and it was a very moonlit. It was almost like a, it was a house on a first floor, and it was just one room. 
I was supposed to be doing something outside, but I wasn't doing it properly, and I was very overwhelmed because I was going to travel soon, and I, I had all these bags to pack, and I sat down on the bed in the middle of the room, and again, it was a lot of moonlight. Suddenly, I noticed that someone was laying in the bed next to me, and it was my sister Amanda. She sat up, and I just started telling her all these things that I felt overwhelmed about, and she said, okay, don't worry, we'll do it together. And she pulled out piece of paper and started writing down all the things that we were going to do. I was looking at her and I just felt such a sense of relief. And I was sitting there looking at her. She wrote all these things and, you know, how we were going to get them done. Suddenly in my dream, I was like, wait, there's something about this. I was like, what, what is it? You know, and I was starting to become conscious. And I was like, I said to her, I was like, Amanda, I was like, but you're dead. And she just kept writing like she hadn't heard me. And I said it again. I was like, Amanda, in the dream, I was still even trying to figure it out. Like, I didn't quite get it. And I said it again, and she still kept writing. She didn't hear it and couldn't hear it or didn't want to hear it. I don't know. Settling the dream, I realized, I was like, wow, I'm with my sister. This is like the spiritual world. I'm with my sister. And I said it again. And at that point, she put down her pen And I think I was starting to wake up at this point, and she looked at me. And I started crying in the dream because I looked into her eyes and just felt so overwhelmed with love, like a purity of love that we rarely experience. It really felt like divine love, like just an infinite source of love. And I just felt like all this love flooding over me, and I started waking up, and I was crying, and I woke up crying, and I felt her being pulled away, you know, back into this other realm. And it was a very physical feeling almost. I was trying to stay in the dream, and I was trying to stay in the dream and, and crying. And then also I've had a lot of other dreams. Oddly enough, since I've gotten married, I haven't had as many. But still, frequently I dream about her. And my family, we talk about her a lot. My parents rarely talk about her without tearing up. I mean, my parents, to me, are two of the most inspiring people I have ever encountered. They're so balanced and so loving and so committed to the service of humanity and so dedicated and so open and willing to learn. And clearly, you know, their middle daughter passed away at such a young age. They felt a lot of pain, yet they also just trusted in there being a, a greater purpose and that this isn't the last existence or the last time that they will see her. You also mentioned the Baha'i writings talked about the unity of religion. I was wondering if you could expound on that. This is always my limited understanding of the Baha'i writings, and I would highly recommend anybody who is curious to investigate on their own. My understanding is that we were created, that we were brought into being. This whole existence, this world, all of us, you know, this galaxy, this universe, and all these other realms were brought into being out of love. It's this divine, eternal, real love. There's a pact, if you will, a covenant, a commitment, if you will, that we would never be abandoned or left alone. 
so this idea that the way God manifests himself or herself or God manifests to us is through these manifestations of God that clearly we can never know our maker, our creator. An analogy, again, that's often used is that a painting can never know the painter. A good friend, Luke Slot, often explains it like this, and it's probably the best explanation I've ever heard, and he quotes C.S. Lewis, <laughs> the famous author, that it's like Shakespeare and Hamlet. If Shakespeare ever wanted to make himself known to Hamlet, it would be up to Shakespeare not up to Hamlet. You know, this idea that, that Shakespeare created Hamlet, and then Shakespeare would have to create a character for himself in order for Hamlet to learn of Shakespeare. Again, a rough analogy, but the same sort of idea is that, is that there's these manifestations, this is these divine educators, these divine teachers that perfectly reflect and mirror forth the purpose and will of God since the beginning of our creation that there have been these divine educators that have appeared at different times to help guide humanity and there are these almost these systems of knowledge. There's the natural scientific world, the elemental world, and then there's this religion, this understanding more spiritual in the science world we learned about gravity and in the spiritual world we learn more about the purpose of love and compassion, also a very real thing that, that we feel even if we can't necessarily measure it. All these divine teachers have helped us progress and that they're not in conflict with each other. As we progress, that we have different capacity and we're in need of a reminder of spiritual teachings and new social teachings to then take us to the next step. Again, another analogy is the idea of grade school. You know, when you go from second to third grade in math, that you use a different textbook and you might have a different teacher, but second and third grade teachers aren't in conflict with each other. And again, you might have a different textbook in third grade, but it has all the same elements in second grade in addition to new things. The essence of all these faiths are to help us develop spiritually and to function with each other And that right now humanity is a new stage. 2,000 years ago we lived more in tribes and nations, but now we have access to each other in terms of telecommunications and traveling in a way that we never used to. So there's a need for new social teachings to help move us forward, social teachings that are inspired by spiritual nature as well and that speak to that spiritual nature. Another analogy that I've heard, or actually there was a play when I was a young girl that we did in a class or someone did in a class that I think is one of the best explanations to me is you have a lamp that sheds light and that helps us all function. Let's say in this town loves the light so much that they decide they want to make the light prettier. So they bring a really nice cloth and put around it. And then someone else comes along and decides they want to make the light even prettier, so they bring another cloth and put it on it. And little by little, you've put so many cloths on it that there's no light. Yet we've accommodated to it to such an extent that we're walking around blindly in darkness so what ends up happening, it seems almost, is that God has to kind of just take off all the things and here's the light again. And it takes us a while to adjust to the new brightness. You know, and maybe because it's generations later, we think it's a different light. But in reality, it's the exact same light. It looks different than what it just looked like with the veils on. But it's the same light that 
helped guide us when it was bright on its own without the veils. Amy, you had mentioned in the Baha'i writings that it provided purpose both for the individual and collectively. I was wondering if you could expound on that. For the individual, and I guess it's easier just to speak for myself, but for me, I believe that I'm created with a purpose, and I believe that everybody is created with a purpose, as I was just saying, that I have something, I have the capacity to reflect, I'm also a little mini-near, you know, and I have the capacity to reflect some of God's light, and all of us do. And my task is to keep it purified to reflect that back. And then I also have something to contribute to the world, that everybody has something to contribute. There's a Baha'i quote that talks about how we're all gems of an inestimable value. And this idea that we're all connected and more and more in the social sciences, we're starting to realize the importance of community and cohesion for the individual. My purpose on one hand is to draw closer to my creator, to align myself with the will of God. The will of God is to have a loving humanity, to reflect love, to reflect kindness, to reflect tenderness to reflect humility to, to others, to develop my gifts and allow others to partake of them and to give space and encourage others to develop their gifts. So that's the individual purpose, and it's so exciting. You know, to me, it's so exciting to think, wow, there's something for me to develop and that I can contribute to humanity, that I can contribute to others, and it's exciting to approach people and think, wow, they also have gifts. So that's the individual purpose. And the collective purpose to me is to create a society where there are no extremes of wealth and poverty. That doesn't mean that we're all the same, but that the extremes are eliminated, that we're conscious of our unity and our oneness, that we all have access to education, that we function based on principles of justice and love and harmony as opposed to the principles by which we function now. One of the things about the Baha'i faith right now that excites me a lot, and again, we're, we're very new. You know, we're a very new faith, and we're just building the foundation. But the, the purpose of the Baha'i faith, as one person says, is that we're subconsciously about transforming society, that that's what we're trying to do, that that's what religion is for, that's what the Baha'i faith is for, that's the purpose of all religions, is to really transform society, and it goes back to, to create a society where all these different individual lights can shine, you know, where all the gems can be found and laid out for the benefit of all who knows? Can you imagine? I mean, it's the same with the human body. When all the different components are working together, it creates a functioning human body. And it's more than the sum of its parts, you know, because if you look, it's not a human body that just sits there. Suddenly it's creative and it can do all this other stuff. So it's the same thing, I think, with the society. Is It's not just, okay, a society that's the sum of its parts, but suddenly when a society is really organized, and working together in the way the different aspects of the human body are, then it's going to create things. And who knows? I mean, I have no idea. I'm, I'm not that visionary. So 
have no idea what it's going to look like, but it's so exciting to think that there is a purpose. So from your understanding of the purpose of life from the Baha'i writings, both individually and collectively, how has that informed what you've decided to do in your life? I chose to do medicine and to do family medicine for that reason. I did a master's in public health for that reason. I engage in numerous activities in in the community for that reason, you know, and really looking at how to increase capacity of myself and of others to affect a transformation. Again, this idea that we're very much at the beginning, we're just laying the foundation and the building blocks for new society. And so on one hand, I strive to be engaged in these activities that the Baha'i world community is working on that look at increasing our spiritual capacity and, and engaging with our communities regardless of religion or belief systems or what have you, but engaging all of us to explore these teachings and these writings and figure out how to infuse and to live by spiritual principles. So that's on one hand, small little ways, trying to contribute to that process. It's a big question for me right now. I definitely want to go to a developing country I chose to marry someone who independently has that desire to do so. I think as soon as I'm done studying, I'd really like to go work in a developing country and, again, work on capacity development. And then in terms of even now as a budding physician, looking at how to also empower and develop capacity at at the grassroots just with my patients. Um, What does that look like? How do you do that? And I think it's also something that's constantly evolving. I think we're constantly trying to align ourselves more to our purpose in life. I think for me, saying prayers, I think reading from the Baha'i writings help me stay inspired and motivated. I think being inspired by others around me. And again, my parents, they've dedicated their whole life to service, and and it's quite remarkable what they've done. So you would like to follow in their footsteps? I would, and in the footsteps of so many others. I mean, there's so many people who do things that are just so inspiring. It doesn't have to be anything huge. Again, working on empowerment and capacity development on, on all different levels. So you would like to be a family practicing physician in a developing country? That's a very difficult question for me right now. I think about this a lot, and I talk to a lot of people about it. I don't think that's what I want to do. I know what inspires me, but I don't know what form it's going to take, if that makes any sense. What inspires you, Amy? Basically, what I've just been saying, I'm really inspired and excited by the idea of all of us having something to contribute and figuring out how to do that, how to make that happen. What do we need? You know, whether you live in a village or in like a city is that we all have something to contribute. That really inspires me. The other thing that inspires me is looking at, and this is more of a big picture thing, but looking at health systems and how how a community can come together in order to work together to improve the health 
of the whole community and all the different aspects that affect health on the community level from very specific things such as having medications to the more upstream things like sanitation, adequate nutrition. So I find that really inspiring. It's the challenge of that I find inspiring. And so what do you feel is the next step for you to prepare yourself? I feel like I have all my degrees. I think I should stop with the degrees. Mm-hmm. Over the course of the next two and a half years, I've already started a few steps with a couple of friends who are also physicians. We've been trying to just come together and, you know, we have a little mini discussion group on this, which is to help focus us and inspire us just in our interactions with our patients. I'm in residency right now, which I'm in for the next three years, and then my husband's doing a PhD, so that's the next four years that we're going to be here. In family medicine, luckily, there's a lot of things you can do. There's group visits, so I'd be interested in looking at doing group visits with different populations. I think I'm going to try to do a few electives overseas. Again, I don't know. This is probably, of all the questions you've asked me, the most difficult to answer (laughs) because I don't know exactly what it's going to look like or how I'm going to get there. I guess part of it is I don't know exactly what it looks like, what I want to be doing looks like. But I also know that somehow the opportunities will present themselves and eventually it will become clear. And I feel like right now I'm in the right place. I'm exactly where I need to be and that there's a lot of learning to be had. Your parents, are they still in Honduras? So my parents, they moved to Nicaragua in 2000. The Social Economic Development Project, they started with another family down there. It's self-sustainable now. It's, it's running a secondary education program and, and a small hospital. The secondary education program, I think, has expanded throughout most of Honduras. It was developed in Colombia, and it was piloted and pioneered out in Honduras. Outside of Colombia, I think Honduras was the first place but it was piloted. So they left that and went to, because they never earned money off of it, and so I think the money earning aspect had ended for my dad in Honduras. They were looking at where to go to next, and I think there was a job opening in Nicaragua. At that point in 2000, they still needed to be close to Honduras to continue working with it, and so they didn't take jobs in other places and, and moved to Nicaragua, and they lived there for the past, I guess, nine years. My mom is now finishing up her services as a counselor for the next year or so. And my dad just moved in August to Nigeria, and my mom will go join him very shortly. Just in August, he got offered a job in Nigeria, and so my parents looked at kind of the needs also of the Baha'i community and decided that maybe it'd be good to go to Nigeria. So he's over there now, and he's having the time of his life they spent 30, 35 years in Latin America, and they're 60 and now moving to Nigeria. It's awesome. He loves it. He's having a wonderful time. So they're there, and then I think eventually they'll probably retire in Nicaragua. So what is he doing in Nigeria? <laughs> now it becomes more obvious that I'm actually following my dad's footsteps. So <laughs> he's also an MD and PH, and he works for a company called MSH, and he is running one of their projects in Nigeria. 
it's a health project. Do you know any more about it? Yeah, it's a health project that supports small NGOs, Nigerian NGOs that are trying to provide services for HIV AIDS. So I guess there's a lot of funding from the U.S. government for that. My dad's company is one of the people that was given some of the funds to implement project and a program. That's what he's doing. So he travels a lot, and then he's also working a lot with the Baha'i community. So those are the two things he's doing. Amy, how would you say growing up in Honduras informed you as a person? I mean, it's so hard to say because I think we have so many things that influence our life. I feel very at home in, in Latin America, so potentially go back there. I mean, for me, I think there's so many amazing things about the U.S., and clearly there's a lot of need here. Even I, who grew up in like a little village in a rural part of Honduras, it can sometimes be a bit of a bubble where it seems like your needs are mostly met and most people's are. I don't know, there's just something that, for some reason for me, when I'm down there, it just feels like a lot more real. And and if you think so many of the world's populations don't, have access to so much of what we do here in the U.S. And I think, I, yeah, going back there is, is always very grounding. But in terms of how it, how it informed me growing up, you know, the fact that we lived in this very rural part of the world, and every day I woke up and I knew that we were there because we were wanting to serve our wider community and inspired by the Baha'i teachings, I think that has very much informed my choices and my hopes for my future. Why else would this American family be out in this low rural area? So, I mean, this is all stuff that I think about now looking back. When I was there, I thought that's how everybody grew up. That was my home. That was my village. You said that life seemed more real. Can you expand on that? For example, here, there's ads for you should be having this or you should be having that. There's just so much coming at you, and I'm busy all day, and I have work, and this and that. And when I was down there, for example, when I lived in Ecuador for nine months, and I was living in another rural area, you know, it was like maybe a population of 400 or something, and we would wash our clothes in the rocks. I was helping out in the high school. I was doing stuff with the bike community, but I was also teaching English in the high school, and there was a few families that I was teaching the, the parents to read and write. I became close to a number of people, and I remember one night this woman who was 40, who looked like she was a lot older, and she had like 13 kids, half of who had survived. She would invite me over whenever she got a little bit of food, and people were really poor in this village. She would invite me over. It was very rare that they would get much protein, They'd have to go try to catch, like, a few shrimp or fish, and most of the time they just ate plantains. But whenever she got a little bit of anything together, she'd have me over for dinner, and she'd always give me the best of it. And we would just sit there. I remember this one night we were sitting there with a little jar with kerosene in it and a little cloth wick, and her 8-year-old granddaughter was just, like, sitting curled up in my arm, and, and this woman was telling us stories. 
for me, it just gives a perspective, like all this stuff that sometimes I think is so important here, it's not that important. You know, I think that was one of the biggest lessons when my sister passed away. It's like, God, what's important? What really matters? And the other thing about living in a developing country for me is that I, I don't mind having to use the latrines in the back and living in a dirty place or not having not too many resources. And I've, I've been lucky enough that I was born into a family that could provide me with education and, and that I've had opportunities to get education. So it only seems fair that, well, not just fair, but it also feels like it's important to allow others to also benefit from that education. And I think it just seems more real because it's real interactions with people. There isn't as much to distract. I think maybe that's what it is. is There's so much to distract us here. We're so easily distractible and speaking of distraction. And there it doesn't seem that's the case as much. So, Amy, I want to thank you so much for telling your story. Oh, my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Amy Smith, a Baha'i young person soon to graduate and pursue a life of service. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i Perspective. such a long time when she looked inside herself she wasn't sure what she'd find she had to open the door a little wider now she had to dig a little deeper inside her somehow she walked into the fire alone and scared stiff now she says his leaving was a strangely wrapped gift Little Jamie's body has never worked right He's never had the peace of sleeping straight through the night His parents get weary and his parents get warm Still they always bless the day that little Jamie was born He opens the door a little wider now Lifts them up a little higher somehow It may look to the world like a 24-hour shift 
But his folks know life with James is just a strangely wrapped gift. What is it that we're really made of? How else will we ever know? Till the hand puts us in the fire, do we burn or do we glow? My doorstep looks sad and forlorn. The wrapping paper's faded; it's all tattered and torn. For a moment, I wonder what on earth it might be. Till I see the tag and realize it's made out to me. It's gonna open the door a little wider now. Lift me up a little higher somehow. I used to run like the blazes. Now I get the drift. Someone who loves me sent me a strangely wrapped gift. Someone who loves me. Someone who really, really. Someone who loves me sent me a strangely wrapped gift. The Lord is my shepherd. I have. Before me, in the present.
And we shall pass empty-handed Into the hollow that is dark For those who speak no more It's only my life till it's ended And it's only what love demanded To give it to you It's like giving away what isn't mine Can I really claim my life or my time Or even the hometown where I landed The slipping away I'll be empty-handed So all I can call these things my own Gonna give them to you I can call these things my own Gotta give them to you Can I really call these things my own This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.